Welcome back to the program. It was actually Winston Churchill and not Rahm Emanuel who first said that we should never let a serious crisis go to waste. That a crisis often creates a great opportunity to face, to talk about, and even sometimes to act on issues that had been previously frozen. Or as Donald Rumsfeld once inarticulately put it, sometimes the only solution to an unsolvable problem is to create a bigger problem. It could be said that climate change provides such an opportunity. That in seeking to address the issues of man-made climate change, we will have to drill down into the very issues that caused it in the first place. We're going to talk about this today with author, journalist, and activist Naomi Klein. She's an award-winning journalist and the author of the critically acclaimed The Shock Doctrine, as well as No Logo. She's a contributing editor for Harper's Magazine, a reporter for Rolling Stone, and a syndicated columnist for The Nation. It is my pleasure to welcome Naomi Klein back to this program to talk about her latest work, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. Naomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you here. I want to start by talking about what you write about with respect to the climate change deniers, because it really goes to the heart of, of kind of the broader issue here, that those that are the deniers and that are doing so for ideological reasons really understand perhaps better than anyone else the depth of the problem and, and really where it needs to be solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why I start the book with them. Um, I, I start the book with um, uh, a report from the heart of the climate change denier movement, which is the Heartland Institute's annual conference that brings together uh, uh, the, the various um, figures from from that movement from around the world to argue that there is this um, this kind of scientific conspiracy uh, uh, to 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 claim that that this is a crisis when it's not. Some people deny the, the science outright. Some people claim that okay, it's happening, but humans aren't causing it. And some people say it's happening, but it's fine. It's not that bad, and everything will be better. And who doesn't like a warm day? Um, so there's a, a range of contradictory scientific theories that are presented. And and you know, one of the things I was struck by is that no one's disturbed by the contradictions um, because this really isn't about getting at a scientific truth it is about just trying to poke holes in 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 the in the in what is genuinely a scientific consensus and what's striking about the movement is that it is a entirely a product of the so-called free market think tank infrastructure um, largely based in in Washington DC these are the um, groups like the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Heartland Institute itself, that exist to advance a very radical vision of how markets and governments should work. The idea of you know, total deregulation, um, extreme you know, cuts to government spending, uh, privatization, um, more corporate free trade deals, and so on. And the argument... Uh, I make, and what I really realized as I, you know, immersed myself in this movement is that um, they understand, this movement understands very clearly that if the science is true, then their ideological system, their worldview would collapse because obviously in the face of a collective crisis um, of such depth, uh, uh, of such global scale, we need to intervene in the market. We need to regulate corporations. We need to act collectively. We need to break all of their rules. And so rather than question their ideology, they deny the science. Of course, the other side of that 
is those that think that there is a more natural, a more organic, if you will, solution, that gradually we can phase out the use of greenhouse gases, find more sources of alternative energy, and that mm -hmm. little by little the problem will get solved without a whole lot of pain. Yeah, and, and the problem with that argument is that it, we, we could have responded to climate change in that sort of gradualist, incrementalist way if we had done so when this crisis really landed on our collective laps at the end of the 1980s and beginning of the 1990s. You know, our governments first had started meeting toward, towards setting emission reduction targets in 1988. The Climate Convention um, was signed in Rio in 1992. Um, and if we had acted then, um, when, when our governments agreed to act, we could have done it gradually, but we didn't. And indeed, global emissions have gone up by 61% since 1990 and so now because there is a there is what what is is sometimes described as a global carbon budget there is there is a fixed amount of carbon that we can put into the atmosphere and still give ourselves a good chance of keeping temperatures below levels that our own governments have described as dangerous even catastrophic um, that means that if we want to stay within our carbon budget, we need to now cut so deeply and so um, so so rapidly that it, it it can't be done in this sort of gradualist way that you you'll barely notice. We need it, it actually challenges the fundamental logic of of sort of mindless economic growth that's at the heart of our of our system. We need to cut emissions by eight to ten percent a year, according to leading climate scientists uh, at the Tyndall Center in Manchester, which is one of the leading um, climate change research institutions. Um, there's no precedent for that kind of reduction outside of the Great Depression. Now we don't want a Great Depression. We want a great transition. We want, you know, we want to do this in a way that is managed. Um, but in, but if we're, if, but if we can't do that, as I said, without breaking all of those rules about what governments should and shouldn't do. Beyond breaking the rules, at the same time, this issue hasn't been dealt with effectively, as you say, back going back to the 80s and, and early 90s. <laughs> that in fact during that same period of time we have become much more globally interconnected. These issues mm -hmm. are much more complex to address on a global scale than they might have been 20 years ago. Yes, and, and that is that the, the model of global integration that, that our governments embraced, pushed by our you know, corporate sector was one that encouraged uh, encouraged global players to scour the world for the cheapest possible production. Now, a lot of the criticism of that has focused on uh, on the fact that that is intimately tied to cheap labor, often under abusive conditions. That was the first book I wrote. No logo was about, um, and you know how corporations were out were no longer producing their own products; they were outsourcing it and what I didn't understand at the time, and I think what many of us didn't understand at the time, is that this wasn't just about cheap labor, it was also about cheap energy. I mean, if your goal, only goal is to lower your production costs, then you aren't just going to, you know, find places where you can pay workers a dollar a day, you're also going to find factories that aren't regulated, aren't under environmental, you know, aren't under, under serious environmental regulations, and that's going to be intimately tied to coal because it is the cheapest and dirtiest energy source. So as this, this model of so-called globalization has spread, it has been accompanied by 
uh, an emissions explosion, so that in the 1990s, our global emissions were going up by 1% a year, but come the year 2000, which is the year China joined the WTO, global emissions started to go up by 3.5% a year. So, um, it, so, so that particular economic model, and you know, the tragedy of it is that in 1992, when governments met in Rio, the mantra was sustainable development. It was precisely that arguing that, that, that governments of the global south had the right to pull themselves out of poverty, but that it had to be done sustainably. Um, and, and it had, it, it, that, that they couldn't embrace the same, uh, high carbon model that, 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 that our, our countries had. But if that was going to happen, they needed to be supported. There needed to be technology trans- transfers, resource transfers of various kinds. And that was really just abandoned on the roadside of this sort of giddy corporate globalization process. What about the fact that China, which has seen the largest increase in this period of time, is working the most actively to bring down their carbon emissions dramatically? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of signs of hope um, that 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 at, at a grassroots level, there is a huge uh, you know, there there there's a widespread realization that we cannot have an economic model that does not take into account environmental impacts. And China, which is often sort of vilified as, oh, well, what does it matter what we do because China is opening a coal factory a week? Um, you know, China is in the midst of a robust debate um, about the cost of what some people in China describe as low-quality growth, this idea of, you know, the only goal is to, is to reach double-digit growth no matter the cost to that workers to the environment. And this is happening in large part because of the, the, the crisis levels of air pollution in major cities. Now, China's economic development, whether it was under an explicitly communist system or this weird hybrid they have now between communism and, 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 and uh, capitalism, it's all. It's always been at war with nature. I mean, now literally waged what he called a war against nature. Um, but and and there have always been severe local impacts. You know, the the the, the towns that are displaced by the mega dams or are, that are polluted by 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 industrial uh, runoff. But what's happening now is that even the elites are choking on, on, on the pollution that is intimately connected to this model of economic growth. And, you know, when even the, the wealthiest families in Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen uh, can't send their kids to school without pollution masks when they're building, you know, indoor playing fields because they don't want their kids to play outside, that's when you really start having this discussion. And China has invested more in clean energy in the past year than all of the year. European Union combined. Um, so there, there are these two, you know, conflicting strains about how China should develop. Um, there's a big push for for, for there to be a, ch- a move to renewable energy on the one hand, and then there's then, then there's the old guard that just want to do it the cheap and easy way. And I think our goal outside of China in countries like the United States and Canada, where I live, is to do what we can to support those forces in China that want to move away from fossil fuels and want a different development path. And I think the best way that we can do that is by cleaning up our own act, um, because the best argument for, um, you know, for not acting on climate change that Chinese politicians have is saying, well, look, you know, they've been polluting for 200 years in the North, and now they want us to stop, uh, despite the fact that we have, you know, hundreds of millions of people in poverty. What are the other areas that come in for an awful lot of 
criticism in your book, and this changes everything, are those people that are arguing for green energy and contributing a lot of money to environmental causes. In many ways, you argue, they've gotten as big and, and become big stakeholders in the status quo as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it's so, there's so much about green energy, but I, what, what I, I have, I have a, a, a section of the book called Magical Thinking, which are the sort of stories that we tell ourselves about, about, uh, about how we're going to get out of this mess so that we don't confront the underlying causes. And, and these, these stories of magical thinking are, you know, one is that the market is going to save us, one is that the billionaires are going to save us, the, the supposedly green billionaires, and one is that technology is going to save us in the sense of like a large-scale techno-fix like geoengineering spraying sulfur into the stratosphere to reflect the sun's rays back to space. Um, so what I take a close look at are you know, people like Richard Branson, uh, um, uh, who you know, owns several airlines and announced in 2006 that he had seen the light on climate change after Al Gore gave him a private PowerPoint presentation and that he was going to spend um, all, uh, all of his profits. He pledged to spend $3 billion over 10 years um, uh, uh, in order to develop a miracle fuel to put into his 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 airplanes, um, and also just to fight climate change generally, and so you know I audit that pledge in the book and look at you know h- how little has been spent compared to what was pledged. But I also look at the fact that in the time that in, in the time that Richard Branson has been sort of crying poor and saying, well, he didn't make enough money to keep those promises. Um, and I should say, you know, he still has two more years. He may well come. He he may yet come through. It certainly doesn't look that way. And and he didn't indicate that he was planning to in in the interview I did with him. Um, but in the meantime, he's launched several new airlines, including Virgin America, including a domestic airline in Britain and Australia. His emissions are up as a result by forty percent at his airlines. So the argument I make is not, you know, that Richard Branson is a bad guy, but actually that Richard Branson is right. We need the profits from fossil fuel based companies to help us pay for the transition away from fossil fuels. That's a very good idea. The problem is that these companies have, have been telling us they're going to do it voluntarily now for a long time and the results are abysmal. British BP is a classic example. More, more than a decade ago, they rebranded themselves beyond petroleum and said they were going to become an energy company, not an oil and gas company. Um, but then comes the natural gas uh, boom, deep water drilling, Arctic drilling. So they've doubled down on some of the dirtiest and highest risk fossil fuels while retreating from their commitments to renewable energy. So really the point is to say they're, they're right, their marketing is right, but it's not going to happen unless we regulate it. We need a polluter pays framework that is enforced by law. What is it going to take to get us to take all of this seriously? Well, I think part of it is... Um, that we need to see a way out that's credible. You know, I think people are deeply concerned about climate change. You know, I think one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is that we're indifferent about this. I don't think you're indifferent about the 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 fate of humanity. I, I, I think some problems are so overwhelming and so frightening that we look away and it looks like apathy. But if you scratch the surface, 
it's raw terror. I mean, this is what I see all the time and what people can sort of confess to me after talks, that they don't look at this issue because they're so scared. And I think that part of the problem is that the solutions that have been presented have not been credible. You know, telling people that, you know, the world is ending, change your light bulbs is not a credible narrative. <laughs> uh, people understand that if the crisis is this deep, if we're talking about the building blocks of our economic system that is entirely based on fossil fuels, it's going to take something pretty drastic to get off them. And there's this idea that we can't tell the truth about that because it'll scare people too much. I think what actually scares people more is is a, a, a being presented with a very frightening problem and an entirely uncredible solution, set of solutions. So, you know, my book is, is taking a different approach. It's saying, why don't we just try to tell, why don't we just try telling the truth about how deep this problem is? The good news is, a great many people understand that our economic system isn't serving them for a whole host of other reasons besides climate change. Um, there's a, a, a very, very live debate about, about the, the legacy of inequality left behind by de deregulated capitalism. Um, we want another, a lot of us want another system. Um, the problem is, is that this has been a very elite debate. It's been, it's been controlled by a lot of people who actually have too much to lose by changing the system. And what we need are more voices in this discussion who have a great deal to gain through the investments in another economic model. Naomi Klein, her new book is This Changes Everything. Naomi, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank Have you. a great day. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Bye-bye.